But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who has a theory that is the nerve... Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? And you can schedule it so that the reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response when a pigeon pecking a disc. Welcome back to Spit and Twitches, the Animal Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bridebeck. Today on the podcast, for episode 14, we get Ed Wasserman. Uh, this is pretty great because uh, Ed, just last year, uh, got the gave the master lecture at CO3. Uh, I like to call it the Lifetime Achievement Award uh, for, for Comparative Cognition. Uh, and as, as I said, is at the University of Iowa. And Ed is somebody who's been doing this stuff for a long time, and he's had a, just an amazing career. I didn't realize that, in fact, his first publication was in science. Um, meaningless little journal, I think it's called. Yeah, it's science. Uh, he's got a couple in science, actually. Uh, recently, he's even been in the news uh, uh, quite a bit because uh, I don't know if you heard about this paper where uh, pigeons were trained uh, to detect uh, slides that had cancer, okay, pictures of uh, a cancerous uh, tissue versus uh, non-cancerous tissue. Uh, and I, in some respects, uh, that really shouldn't be surprising that pigeons would be very good at this. Uh, but, uh, and I think Ed's mentioned that when he was on uh, Quirks and Quarks, I think, on CBC. It's really something, uh, though, I think for the general public to realize that the, the sort of perceptual and cognitive abilities of animals like pigeons can sometimes be uh, better than ours, of course, because there's different evolutionary pressures on them than have been on us. So they're very good at detecting small changes, small differences between stimuli. Um, Ed's been doing stuff like that, Ed and his students, for a very long time, for years, right? For like 30, 40 years. So, uh, like I said, it's this is the kind of thing that... Ed's been working on, Ed's students have been working on, looking at these comparisons uh, between various species and also looking at commonalities uh, between uh, things like pigeons and things like people. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ed Wasserman. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Great. So, this is, this is kind of neat. Uh, I haven't uh, talked to... You're the first person, I think, who's... Uh, given the CO3 master lecture, who I've talked to on this podcast. So, you know, that's kind of a, a, I think it's an honor for you, really. Well, I was honored. I really enjoyed it. I had a, a super time last year. Yeah, it was great. I really, it's funny. I, I, I remember, the, I think the first time I met you was at the, uh, oh, what was that called? That Dalhousie conference, the conference on complex and extended stimuli. Then it became a book called something else that i can't remember right yeah uh and i was geez i guess i was 23 or something i was a master's student uh and sarah sent me to this thing uh and it was just it it was really eye-opening seeing everybody there uh and i remember at that time a lot of your stuff hit me as uh, being a kid being very technical um in in a good way that's 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 a you know i'm trying to say something positive there um but I didn't really see how it related to stuff I was doing. Uh, and, and now I look at, at, at things nowadays and I, I see that sort of, especially when you, when you gave your master lecture, that sort of this big picture, this idea of 
looking at perceptual and cognitive systems uh, from a comparative standpoint is useful no matter what kind of problems you're studying? Well, we have an agenda, and all of us follow it to some degree or another. The entry points are usually topical, but there's an underlying theme, and the theme is obvious that we're netted together with all other animals, Mm -hmm. that cognition did not emerge with us de novo, (laughs) and that uh, good experimental science will reveal those interconnections and potentially the evolution of intelligence. Yeah, well put. I mean, it's funny, you talk about like how we all have an entry point. I'm curious about your entry point, because I read that this great bio of you on the APA page. You started out as a physics major? Yeah, <laughs> that was a bad fit. <laughs> oh, really? Why was it a bad fit? There were no women in the class. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Look, point taken. I, 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 yeah, in psychology, it's, it's almost exactly the other way around, at least in my experience. Um, so then you switched over, and I, I love this uh, in that bio. It says you switched over to having a major of undecided, which I, I, I wish more well, people would do that. You don't want to jump the gun, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What but ma- seriously, yeah. I, I, had, I had no idea. I went through the catalog of courses <laughs> and majors so many times I decided it wasn't really getting me anywhere right. because I knew that I wasn't cut out for medical school, although many people suggested that I would be. Sure. It, it, it was always the case, though, that I loved animals. I had many, many different kinds of pets, none of which had fur, thanks <laughs> to my mother, uh, bless her heart. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought, well, let's just take a look at psychology right. and saw the opportunity to study animals and their behavior. I had a really excellent in- introduction to learning mm-hmm. from John Houston who was one of the rare breed of uh, instructors who taught an integrated learning course, human and animal. Oh, nice. And I really saw a very simple opportunity to apply my love for natural science with my love for animals. Nice. And, uh, well, what could be better than comparative cognition? Yeah, totally, right? I mean, it's funny. The idea of – and it's so rare when when people think of learning as something that – where they talk about uh, human and non-human learning in the same course. I mean, I know, in fact, when I teach learning, I, the, the course outline actually says, now and then I'll even mention humans. But it doesn't even occur to me a lot of times to talk about, say, human verbal learning or anything like that. Well, I was at the very end of a period where this kind of integrative approach was taken. Yes. So my first course in psychology was from uh, Tom Trabasso, and his teacher was Frank Russell. Frank Gretzel had been at Michigan State, but then he moved to Indiana University, and that's where I went to graduate school. Mm -hmm. And he was a real devotee of this integrated approach. He and Gordon Bauer and Bauer's student John Anderson, when he began, was his book was Human and Animal Learning Together. Mm -hmm. Of course, we've separated, uh, I don't think, to any field's benefit. But the problem is there's just so much to be learned within any given area that this fractionation seems to be an inevitability. Right. Uh, did, did you think that, like, I, I mean, you, you, like you said, you, you sort of early on in the, or I guess late on in, in the sort of human verbal learning area, and also early on, uh, even really before the rise of what today we call comparative cognition or animal cognition, at the time when you started uh, looking at this stuff, were you starting to think about animals thinking uh, and representational kind of things? No, I... I had my training predominantly from the neo-behaviorist tradition. That is John Houston 
was at, at UCLA and he had worked with Melton and, and Postman, real neo-behaviorists. It was also the case that one of my teachers, a fine and gentle, wonderful professor, John Seward, was a contemporary of Spence who wrote Mm -hmm. and researched on many of the same topics but never got the same acclaim. Right. But uh, that was really the the tradition. But what was nice about the tradition of neo-behaviorism is they were taking the behavioristic topics and methodologies from the animal lab and putting it into the human lab. Exactly, yeah. And we are going the other way predominantly. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Eh? And so it's the, it, it is a two-way street. And I'd like to think that what I would represent in my own career is that commerce in each direction so that I haven't dwelled solely on animal behavior or, or sure. human behavior, but have seen the interconnections between them. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. One of the things that Sarah Shuttleworth always said to me is, uh, you don't study species, you study problems. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, the chapter headings, memory, uh, cognition, Mm -hmm. uh, categorization, representation, these are things that don't have species associated with them. No. Uh, And and why should they? No, exactly, Uh, right? And as long as something has a a nervous system, it's going to represent stuff. That's right. In one way or the other. For sure. Um, the the one of the papers you sent me, uh, the uh, who is it again? It's uh, Wasserman and Colin, The one about the violin. Uh, I love that. I just I read it last night, and uh, I was getting actually getting all kind of giddy. <laughs> I was really enjoying it. Oh gosh, I don't know whether I need to take credit for that. <laughs> well, it was yeah, maybe not. Yeah, that's maybe that's a little weird, but uh, I really enjoyed it because it looks at the evolution of, of, of something, of, of an actual physical object. And we can, talk, we can talk about other things, of course, but violin's a great example because it evolves slowly over a long period of time, and it doesn't seem like there's any internal, or, sorry, external designer. It just happened, right? It wasn't like somebody sat down one day and said, you know what I'm going to make eventually is this thing. It just started out one way, and I didn't know that either, and uh, my dad used to make guitars back in the day. So, I mean, I, even just thinking about that, I think that's probably why it hit me sort of from both uh, angles. But it really, I think, nicely, uh, that, that paper outlines your sort of your theoretical approach, which is this idea that we can look at really big picture stuff and then move down uh, and look at the small picture, right? That is, every story has an origin. There is always an origin story. Yes. But the thing is, origins are really tough to identify. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the origin of species wasn't the, the story of species. It was about how they might have begun or emerged. And when we talk about physical uh, uh, products yeah. like violins and teepees and mm-hmm. Scotty dogs, all of these in some way, shape or form have an origin story. The problem is, how can we tell the story when we weren't there at the beginning? Yeah. And even if we are there at the beginning, then there are conflicting accounts. We, If you wanted to look up an interesting topic, look up the evolution of the mouse. I don't mean moose. I mean the computer <laughs> mouse. Right. Okay? And th- that's an involved and interesting story. But I think in almost all of these cases, no one foresees what the end is going to be. You can't. And the violin was a really excellent example. Uh, Patrick Cullen, who's actually an undergraduate here in biology. Nice. He and I worked together on this paper. And 
It, of course, has its own origin, but I won't burden you with that. Uh, (laughs) The fact of the matter is that the things that we do and the things that we make are all behavioral questions. And to the extent that we believe that psychology has a part to play in understanding ourselves, our interactions with the world and the things in it, uh, the law of effect may have much more standing than we typically give it credit for. Right. So there are many of these stories. I've been accumulating them and threatening to write a book. <laughs> I mean, I have at least a half of a book of, of these stories. They are stories. You know, uh, it's hard to nail down evolution. Sure. Look at the problem of uh, determining the evolution of the nervous system. Yeah. when, As a rule, tissues don't fossilize. Uh, yeah. But the fact of the matter is, if listeners want to take a look at that paper, it will also take you to other stories that I've told and, and learned about over the years. Right. Maybe it would be useful just briefly to say why and oh, totally. how it is I came to be interested in the, the, the issue. And the simple story is that I've been teaching the law of effect for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And one way that you teach it is to show the parallel with natural selection. So you talk about variation. Mm-hmm selection and retention. These are the three key elements. But when you talk about selection, it inevitably in students' minds suggests a selector. Yes, exactly. And when you talk about the behavior of organisms, clearly they assume the selector is the organism, not the environment. Mm -hmm. And it gets so wrong for that reason that you search for some means to communicate this and to try to explain that there are circumstances that are shaping the behavior beyond the the plans or aspirations or designs of the person doing it. Mm -hmm. So you talked about the the guitar. By the way, Stradivari made guitars too. There aren't so many, but he did make make guitars. Mm -hmm. So all of these people over time worked on violins, and the paper explains the intricate evolution of the violin thanks to what turned out to be last year two really beautiful physical science papers uh, looking at the shape of the violin and its acoustic properties. So that was just too good an opportunity to miss because in each case the authors intimated or explicitly stated that it wasn't by design, that is, by D-E-S-I-G-N. It wasn't planned, purposeful, with the end in sight. How could you possibly design a violin with the end in sight over hundreds of years? Mm. You were not around for those hundreds of years. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, and you, you talk about computer mouse. I mean, you think back to when computers were first in the home and, 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 you know, I'm sitting in front of literally three computers right now. Um, there's one recording, one that has some of your, papers on it and then one that has well it's a tablet that has the 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 outline of the way that i want the interview to go the idea that oh oh, and my phone's a computer too the idea that anybody that first was looking at computers was thinking oh eventually we'll get there uh is completely different yet that kind of just sort of seems to happen and we don't even really notice it right and if, if you would ask people that if you would have asked i don't know bill gates or even steve jobs 40 50 years ago would they expect that computers would be that ubiquitous? I think both of them would have said no. You know, uh, I think that's right. Yeah. And I think that the actual path that, that takes us to any particular product mm-hmm. or particular behavior is is intriguing. The one that I've found particularly interesting is the moonwalk. Right. Most people think that Michael Jackson invented it. Yeah. He didn't. He was certainly 
one of the very best moonwalkers. Sure. But others preceded him, including David Bowie yep. and uh, a, a great generation of black tap dancers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can actually go online and see Cab Calloway. Yes, uh, I've seen this. Yes. Uh, doing a, a, a primitive, but nonetheless the, uh, identifiable moonwalk. Sure. And it's just marvelous to see over a span of oh, 50, 60 years, the evolution of a behavior and yet we're still missing links to the, to the story in much the same way that we're missing links in the story of the evolution of humankind. No doubt. And it's interesting because you talk about the law of effect. There you've got a neural substrate that runs the law of effect. I'm sitting here trying to – I'm struggling with the idea. What is the substrate for evolution itself? And I don't oh, know. I don't know either. Yeah, okay, fair you, enough. You got me on that one. Yeah, I, don't, I, I honestly uh, – I think about this all. In fact, students have asked me this question before because, like you said, you, you, when you talk about evolution, you talk about the law of effect. When you talk about law of effect, you talk about evolution if you're a psychologist. And I've had students ask me that question. Now you should go, oh, I don't know. Okay, good. So I, I'm in good company. <laughs> well, Skinner uh, does have some, I think, particularly insightful comments to make about that parallel. And in the yes. violin paper and in another JAB paper that preceded it, I did try as hard as I could to elucidate the complex uh, nature of evolution and yeah. the uh, selection by consequences. Right. But it is a, it's a, a fraught interrelation. Some insist that, that the law of effect is more Lamarckian than Darwinian. Hmm. Uh, Jay Moore had, has made that. I, I, I can, yeah, I, 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 I guess I could see that. I, I, I mean, they're not exactly the same thing, but they really, work in very much the same way, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Um, looking at uh, a lot of your stuff over the years, uh, and there's a lot of it, I mean, uh, one of the fun things I had about reading your, your biography was the, uh, was your first paper actually published in science, your very first paper? No, the first one was in Psych Reports, but the first really uh, re- strongly reviewed, properly reviewed okay. paper was in fact in science. It was my first year graduate. Oh, that's, that must have been, did you even know what a big deal that was or? I suspect that it was pretty good, but honestly, uh, in terms of a big deal nowadays, I wouldn't say that a science or nature paper is such a big deal. And I can prove it with our close paper on pigeons as, <laughs> as uh, diagnosticians of, of breast cancer. Yeah, really. Because the, the buzz off of that was uh, enormous. Open access, I think. Yeah. It's something that I hadn't really fully processed before, but it, it's, it's hit me right between the eyes now. Yeah, that, and that paper's a lot of fun. I mean, um, it's, it's funny because I remember when it first came out, I thought, I think Ed Wasserman had something to do with this. And when I started reading it, I, like, I literally hadn't seen who the authors were yet when it was hitting the media. And the first thing, uh, 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 I knew it, I knew it. Uh, when you, what was the impetus for actually doing that work? Well, we're all familiar with Hernstein's sure. work on, on picture recognition. And once again, teaching was an important part of how I got into the categorization business. Mm-hmm. So I got into the categorization business because it was right. clear to me that as groundbreaking as the work was, it wasn't really going anywhere. Sure. Uh, the, the model of categories as chair, non-chair, fish, non-fish, yeah. water, non-water. I mean, give, give me a break. You know, there's no, there's nothing, uh, anything like categorization to be had there. Sure. So I decided with a student to try multiple category discrimination and, and generalization. Mm-hmm. And that very first experiment worked really well. It became 
that pair of papers in JEP in 1988. Yeah. And incidentally, although I tried publishing that paper or one of the pieces of it in Science and Nature, and they said, <laughs> I nevertheless did publish it in JEP, and lo and behold, the New York Times picked it up. I didn't know they read JEP at the New York Times. They That's good for did. them. They not only picked it up, they sent a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter to Iowa City for a full science daily spread. Oh, nice. And that really uh, launched the work on categorization. Cool. Since then, of course, as I tried to describe in that master lecture mm -hmm. that we had, how the, the methods have evolved now working with Bob McMurray here, a developmental psychologist. We've right. now got not just four categories being trained by, uh, being learned by pigeons, but 16. Right. And we've, we've learned how to do a better job at capturing the essence of the things that humans do that give credence to the idea of cognition. Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds roundabout to the answer to the question about <laughs> the, about the uh, cancer project. But in point of fact, I wanted to do this categorization study with uh, some kind of biological assays. Mm -hmm. And I, we had a, a person in our department, Don Dorfman, who became interested in applying ROC analysis to, uh, to radiologists. Mm -hmm. And he had some really interesting and, and innovative things to say. Unfortunately, he got quite ill and then passed away. But he and I talked very seriously about doing a project like that. But remember, back then, all we had available were slide projectors. Yes. And the quality of the imagery was just going to be pretty bad. And uh, it just never got off the ground. Yeah, I, I so remember these the days, yes. Out of the blue, I get a phone call from uh, Richard Levinson at uh, University of California Davis Medical School who says, you know, one of your former colleagues out here, Steve Luck, said you're just the right guy to talk to. I said, yeah, why? <laughs> and he described a project, the very project that Don Dorfman and I had planned to do 20-some years earlier. And uh, the rest, they say, is history. It became pretty clear that with the right stimuli and the right training techniques, and goodness knows we know how to train pigeons, uh, we could get them to uh, effectively categorize uh, slides that were cancerous and benign, sure. which they did, and they transferred with uh, quite high accuracy. But of course, we found limits to their abilities. Those limits uh, came into play when the other member of the team, Elizabeth Krupinski, gave us different kinds of radiological samples, unlike the actual tissue samples that we used in the first project. And we found that pigeons suffered from the same difficult challenges that the people did. Right. The radiological images are much more challenging when you have suspicious lumps that may or may not be cancerous. Right. It's a difficult matter to teach. One of the reasons why it may be difficult, it's, it's hard to verbalize. You know, you, people who are trying to teach students, well, they say, well, you know, the edges aren't quite as sharply defined and there's not as hom much homogeneity in the mm -hmm. interior. And, well, you know, those, how do you actually see that? What does that look like? And, well, the fact of the matter is maybe the best way to teach things like this are not verbal. Right. Maybe, the, maybe the bird model actually offers some uh, insights into how better to teach people. Yeah, and it's funny because I mean one of the things that when it came out, and I think I heard it when I heard you on uh, on Quirks and Quarks on CBC, and uh, when Bob McDonald, the host, asked you if you were surprised at this, and you, I think you said no, 
<laughs> because, I mean, it, it's not surprising that pigeons could do this. It's, in fact, it would be surprising for me if pigeons couldn't do it. That was how I thought of it. But, yeah. you know, I, I mean, you know, we've been, we've been conditioned to expect high, <laughs> high performance from yes. our birds. And there's a good reason why. Uh, when yeah. you give them reasonable tasks, they give us great data. Exactly. Uh, it, it, it's funny because you talk about you know, teaching things with verbal stuff. My, my brother uh, teaches. Uh, my brother's a record producer, uh, and he teaches at a, a college. Uh, he's a he's the college professor in the family, by the way, that doesn't have uh, didn't finish high school. Just let. That's funny how that worked out. But uh, I'm not bitter. Uh, <laughs> I'll hear that. Yeah, I'm not sure. But uh, Dan, he, he teaches uh, record, uh, like production and engineering. And I asked him, how do you teach people how to get a good bass drum sound? And he said, you can't, you can't tell them. You got to show them. Right? So it's the same kind of thing. And I mean, uh, it, it's fascinating, this kind of thing, because it's just repetition. And people sort of eventually pick out uh, the important characteristics. And so, of course, uh, the pigeons. One of the things that's always bothered, not bothered me, I guess a lot of people wonder, do pigeons see see pictures as representations of the real world? And do you think that matters at all? It never mattered to me. Okay, good. Me neither. Uh, But of course it mattered to Ron (laughs) uh, and, and others. And the fact of the matter is that I've always simply assumed that what these two dimensional images are, are some kinds of representations of actual objects in the sense that they have the properties of natural objects so that members of one category have more features in common than they have with members of different categories. The other thing is with natural images, of course, we don't know what those properties are for people either. So it's the, the challenge is ultimately to try by means of experiment and analysis to figure out what the mysteries of categorization really are. Yeah. And uh, my student, Fabian Soto, uh, has been working hard at this issue, and he's uh, led the, our small team to mm-hmm. uh, forward a, a theoretical account in Psych Review in 2010 mm-hmm. for how it is you might simply divide up the, the distinctive and common features of, of, of stimuli and see how far an associative network might go in terms of solving these problems. Yeah. But differential reinforcement may not be the only way you can teach categories. So sure. in other work, a paper that's just been accepted in JEP, uh, we've actually shown that you don't have to use differential reinforcement to teach categories. You nice. simply need to, uh, in some ways, uh, tag or alert the the subject to possible differences. And they somehow then can pick up on the regularities. They probably see these regularities from the beginning, but what differential reinforcement does, as Hernstein himself said, is uh, just make it more obvious to us that the birds have picked these things up. So we use conditioning. This is our standard method. But people in developmental use Les Cohen's habituation-dishabituation technique. Right. You know, it's... The techniques that you have to use to induce, to pull out the differential behavior, that's what we do for a living. We figure out those ways. But some may be more effective than others. Uh, Some may be more practical than others. So to think of giving infants a task where you're giving reinforcement or non-reinforcement and, you know, the little guys are are, are six hours old, you you pretty well forget about it. You're going to have to deploy some other trick in order to get the answers. 
and uh, that's what we have to be alert to. Right. Now, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it's funny when you don't always have to, like you said, use reinforcement for everything. It's just it's what we know how to do. It's 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 the thing that's in our toolbox, right? And it's our, our sort of go to thing. It is our go to thing. It is though uh, as uh, as powerful as we deem it to be, mm-hmm. something of a blunt instrument. Yes. And the fact of the matter is, because we use it, we have critics and commonly students say, well, aren't the pigeons just doing that because they get reinforcement? And, you know, you have to step back and say, what have I done wrong? What haven't I explained? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, I mean, the answer to that question is, of course. Of course they are, yeah. <laughs> but that wasn't the point of the project. Yeah. You seem not to have really caught on to the fact that we could have taught them to do something really exciting, like peck a red key or a blue one. But, you know, I mean, we decided <laughs> we could use really intricate, lifelike stimuli to answer fundamental questions. But no, it, and then you get into rather silly arguments. Yeah. And, and <laughs> that's where I don't like to be. Yeah, exactly. It's funny, you talk about, like, looking at... Uh, you know, getting down to the real basics of stuff. And I, I mean, one of the things about the Wasserman, Brooks, and McMurray paper you sent me is that you sort of basically looked at verbal learning, uh, well, language learning, really, right? And, and looking at uh, basically a task analysis of trying to find out what it is that makes learning language special. Uh, talk a little bit about that paper, because it's pretty cool. Well, what we tried to do in that, that project is to up the ante. We had gone from this presence-absence categorization mm-hmm. task that Hernstein developed to a four-key categorization task. And although we haven't published the paper, I do allude to it in uh, the paper that's coming out in Behavioral Processes in a couple months. Mm-hmm. We did actually take the, the clue from Sue Savage-Rumbaugh and build a 16-button yeah. touchscreen task for the pigeon where they actually reported members of 16 different categories. It was an arduous, painful process, but but the birds did learn and they did generalize. And what was uh, useful about the exercise was that it, it, it inspired us that we hadn't in any way got to the limit. However, we were really not happy with the fact that in order to get to 16, you had to go from 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 to 5. And every time you added a category, you had to sustain performance on the old ones, look at learning to the new one, mm-hmm. add a button, Add a visual category to the to the array of stimuli that you were giving. It was arduous. It was difficult, and for statistical analysis, it was a nightmare because the probability of a correct response kept going down as you kept adding categories. <laughs> and so uh, it was unworkable in the long term. And Bob McMurray made the suggestion from what people do in human developmental work, and that is. Well, just show a limited number of the ca- of the ca- of the options of the response options on any given trial. So, although you may be training with sixteen categories, only show four buttons. Yeah. And then I said, Bob, why four? Why not two? <laughs> so you show the correct button and one randomly of the fifteen incorrect ones, and that way we can start teaching at the beginning with all of the categories and all of the examples. And that's what the inspiration for the project that appeared in Cognition, the one to which you refer. Yeah. And that's cool because I had originally thought, well, it made some sense to add one category after the other as we're teaching the pigeons. But in fact, children learn language when they're assaulted with all the words that people are speaking, 
Now, mind you, they're not going to say infundibulate when they're talking to an infant. So the, the vocabulary <laughs> will be a little bit narrower than it would otherwise be. But still, it captured something basic about the way words might, words might be learned. And since Bob McMurray is a master of understanding acquisition of words and, and uh, phonemic perception as well, uh, he saw parallels that I never did. So this was a wonderful team for the simple reason that he had his expertise in developmental psychology, particularly language learning. And I, my, my skill set was, as we all know, in sure. conditioning. And the, the argument that he helped make much more forcefully than I ever could and with much greater legitimacy <laughs> is that there are profound parallels. And one of the big issues is whether or not learning words involves stamping in correct answers or also elimination of errors, right. incorrect ones. And this, you know, gets to the yin and yang of the law of effect. Here we are back to the sure. law of effect again. So, I mean, Thorndike talked about stamping in, yes. but there's also the possibility of a pruning or, or, or inhibitory process that might be going on. And right. we're using this design now, Victor Navarro and, and I and uh, Tanya Remke, one of Bob McMurray's students, to push the envelope. We're, we're doing these experiments with both people and pigeons to see to what extent there is some basic associative mechanism behind not only what our pigeons are doing, but what babies are doing. I love the stuff with babies partially because it's kind of like what we have to do because you have to, you can't just ask a baby a question. You've got to design a clever experiment. And uh, some of the best conversations I've had among, with other colleagues or people that work with infants. because Absolutely. Uh, yeah. They are kindred spirits. Yeah, exactly. They, I mean, I don't think I can describe how much more affinity we have with that field than with any other. People have told me, Oh, neuroscience is the way to go. That's where our work is really going to have impact. I'm having a harder time warming to that than I am seeing the parallels to developmental. Yeah. And the other thing is, of course, when we talk about uh, rich repertories of behavior emerging, we talk about the evolution and development of behavior. We, we, we kind of put those things together because we see uh, different species exhibiting much more plasticity and sure. complexity in their behavior in much the same way that we see infants grow and show both greater flexibility and intricacy. Well, I guess now that we got back to the law of effect, it's probably a good place for us to wrap it up today, Ed. Um, where, If people want to uh, find out more about your lab, uh, do you know the URL? Oh, I just type Wasserman Psychology Iowa in Google, and you'll <laughs> find out more about me. Sounds good. Uh, if you want to uh, follow me on Twitter, it's at dbroadbeck on Twitter. You can find other podcasts I do at broken-area.com, davebroadbeck.com, besteepisodeever.com, mmbh.ca, and of course here at Spit and Twitches. I really, really appreciate this, Ed. I hope to see you in uh, Florida in a couple of months. You will. We'll be there with bells on. Outstanding. But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? 
The main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward, and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot in the wall, and you can reinforce with food. But you don't reinforce every time. You every perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute, or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. share the same genome and so they would try to so we are a, a clone if you want and, and we try to help our um, gametes to go into the next generation in this case is a conflicting system and um, for that reason this is very interesting this is a parasite and this is um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby which doesn't look at all like the like the host and nevertheless they manage to use precise trickery to make them do what they want. <laughs> 